Welcome back to Distinct Nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. A special interview now for the Bank Holiday Weekend as we return to our occasional celebration of great British film on Distinct Nostalgia. I've been speaking to a star of the groundbreaking 1971 film Sunday Bloody Sunday. Listed in the BFI's top 100 British films, it tackled bisexuality and included a same-sex kiss for the first time in a big movie. Glenda Jackson played Alex, a divorced woman in her 30s, while Peter Finch was Daniel, a gay Jewish doctor. The subject of their desires throughout in an open love triangle is a young sculptor called Bob. The film was directed by the legendary John Schlesinger, whose movies also included Midnight Cowboy, A Kind of Loving, Far From the Madding Crowd, Billy Liar and The Day of the Locusts. The screenplay was by Penelope Gilliatt. It starred a plethora of other household names and was nominated for four Oscars and won multiple BAFTAs as well as Golden Globes. Well, the man who played sculptor Bob in this groundbreaking film, the love interest, was actor Murray Head, who was also famous for Jesus Christ Superstar and One Night in Bangkok, if you remember that, among other things. And I've had the absolute pleasure to sit down with a true legend of British cinema. Enjoy. Lovely to talk to you, Murray. Um, You've just said to me before we started that you're 74. 75. 75. I cannot believe that. You do not look 75, I have to say, at all, in any way, shape or form. That's very flattering. I watched a thing called Imagine with uh, Tom Stoppard. And he referred to his life as charmed. And he's Czechoslovakian. And the Germans moved in and his parents took him out. And he went at the age of eight to an English public school. That seemed to set the pace for, 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 for then onwards. And after listening to him for an hour, I think he did have a charmed life. But at the same time, I thought, actually, well, maybe I've had one as well. And it's because you end up, Although there's a lot of pain along the way, um, the most important ingredient is sensitivity. Uh, the trouble with sensitivity is you can't control things, right? So you get, when things are great, they're great. But when they're bad, you can't stop them coming through and you can't stop reacting to them. So it's, it's like bipolar, it's complicated. And um, by being... Uh, open to a lot uh, it allowed me to fight for what I believed in or what I felt I could uh, respond to and uh, it's so it so happened um, that I have done pretty much what I've wanted to do in a world that won't easily accept um, shades or accept you know you've got a job you stick to that job for the rest of your life the idea in the 60s of somebody who would want to sing at the same time as act was just not on. And I would find, uh, you know, you'd find the first thing I did was actually uh, a film called The Family Way with, with Hayley Mills and, and the Bolting Brothers. And I mean, I got the job because I was just singing. Uh, but all the time, you know, throughout that experience, you, you know, you're all right as an actor, but quite frankly, you'll make your money at, uh, at music. And then you find yourself in the music business and the mu- people in the music, and, you know, you can do an album if you like, but I mean, honestly, uh, where you're going to make your money, you know, where you're going to be successful is in acting. And you're, you just get this feeling, both sides are pushing you on to the other. 
to get rid of you uh, because it's it's a, they're they're both competitive um, ways of working. And I I it's the one thing I've tried to avoid all the way through. I've stuck out for individuality, my individuality, and tried to avoid. Um, the competitive side of it, I find it, it doesn't make my work any easier if, if there's competition. Let's go back then to the very early years. And we, obviously we want to mainly talk about Sunday, Bloody Sunday, but yes. let's talk about your earlier career. You mentioned there the family way, which was the first thing you did. Tell us a little bit about that. How did that come about? Was that, was that actually your first film then? Uh, it was. I hadn't even considered acting. At that point, I'd, uh, what had happened was I'd, I'd, I'd uh, sent some tapes to Radio Luxembourg. It was a sort of talent search. It was called the Radio Luxembourg. Yeah, I think it was called the talent search or whatever. Um, and uh, an, uh, an enthusiastic engineer heard them, passed them on to Cyril Stapleton, who with his pal Jeffrey Everett, who owned or ran Radio Luxembourg, I'd say in parenthesis, Jeffrey F. Everett was a sergeant in the army guarding the, the, the Radio Luxembourg house, which had studios in it. And as soon as the war had ended, he just stepped over the, um, over the, 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 you know, into the entrance and took it. He actually took Radio Luxembourg. And he had, uh, Cyril Stapleton was a, a band leader, and he, the two of them put this thing together. I think it was to find uh, composers, people who wrote their own stuff, which was happening quite a lot. And the third person in the uh, equation was Norrie Paramore, uh, who was Cliff Richards's producer. And they said, we love your stuff, we want to sign, we're going to sign you to EMI. They signed me to EMI, um, and Norrie Paramore agreed he'd wanted to do singles. Um, but I was 17 or 18, and I had to go to my parents to get their approval and to sign the contract. And this was the first they knew about me singing or anything, and my father immediately rang up Norrie Paramore and said, um, well, if I was going to take this seriously, I mean, I'm sorry, he's going to be singing with tu tuition and then you go to college. Or to which Norrie Paramore, who saved me at the very early, this early point in my life, said, God, don't do that. That's the worst thing you'll possibly do. You know, the reason we've heard, the reason we've signed him is because he's got a unique voice. Leave him alone. And it was the first time anybody ever asked, ever asked my parents to leave me alone. It was great. It was really necessary. The woman they took me to, to, to deal with the contract, worked for Al Parker's theatrical agency. Her name was Monty Mackey. She was a good friend of uh, the Rolling Stones manager. And uh, she said to my parents, would you, would it be okay if I put him up for theatrical work? I think he's the spitting image of Jess Conrad, which was a shock to me because Jess, I didn't think he was the greatest of singers, and, 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 but I wasn't going to argue with her. And she put me up for the family way. I had just got back from Ireland. I bought myself a D-mob suit, which I was very proud of. I'd sewn, sewn it together. I turned the trousers into sort of uh, flares. And, um, you know, in those days, we did actually make 
do our own not surgery uh, sewing, <laughs> uh tailoring and um i went to see the 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 bolting brothers who were twins and they were looking they i played them the music that i had just done which was We'd done a very strange sort of up-tempo version of Land of Hope and Glory, a song called Someday Soon, and another slightly misogynistic song called It's Time She Went. And um, I played these things, and it seemed to correspond with what they were looking for, uh, which was, in fact, in, in the family way was about, I suppose, for want of another expression, um, environmental impotence. My elder brother was getting married to Haley, and after the wedding ceremony, they, the place they were hoping to go to, the holiday was the honeymoon they were hoping for, was cancelled. Uh, the house that they were going to go and live in was um, also fell through, and so he was forced to live in his parents' house where the walls are paper thin, and he wasn't going to be able to fo- to perform. So it was just a Bill. It was a Bill Norton piece, wasn't it? it was yes, Bill it was. Yeah, who did Alfie, didn't he? Of course, he did. And Bill Norton has an understanding of the North like no one else on earth. And so it's the first time I went. You know, I got to Bolton, and we shot in Bolton, and um, it, I was the sort of reminder of a slightly less sensitive, more. Um, go-ahead younger brother who not only didn't have any problems sexually but also won races on trials bikes and uh, etc etc was your older was your brother Hill, Hill Bennett Howell Howell Bennett. Howell Bennett yeah now I, I, I'd always wanted to interview him because because he went on to do that series Shelley which I grew up watching as a kid in the 80s what was he like as an actor to work with He's a good actor. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It only takes structure. And, and you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you know I mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to oh, yeah, I'm trying yeah. I'm trying, oh, I'm, trying yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Me, yeah. Me, we all artists, man. We go you feel me, we gonna have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta lie, don't play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit. Sir. Um, he was quite grumpy because he was he'd he'd already drunk in his early twenties. He was well into drinking. And he taught me something which I've never used, but I must admit it was it was an eye opener, <laughs> so to speak. He used to put egg white on on his bags under his eyes to, before he got to the, the makeup in the morning. Um, he was a fine actor. He was sensitive. He was a lovely guy. Um, the we was both of us walking down Moss Side. Uh, in on on one one afternoon, I think it was a Sunday. We weren't filming, and he had a pair of sunglasses on, which looked quite sort of 
Hollywood really and two very tough boys came up and took off the sunglasses and he started he hadn't got the gift of the gab he didn't he was asking for them back in the wrong way and they took out a switchblade which apart from being not the ultimate you know not what you wanted to see it was broken as well it was a horrible switchblade and you know i immediately had um thoughts of uh, septicemia and all the rest and so i did the the blah i did the let us get us out of this and uh, i remember thinking you know just because you've been done well in acting school it doesn't mean it can prepares you for life and for those raw moments it was such an obvious thing of, to be avoided and uh I was closer to it than he was. And I think that that's actually probably true of everything I've ever done. For me, acting depended on how much you saw and, and did. You, it, it, it was my first introduction to the North and it was tough. And uh, you learn to be discreet and careful. Um, it's, but funny, it's funny you should say this about Moss Side because uh, co coincidentally, I've just come out of hospital with sepsis recently no and i'm and i'm currently seeing a district nurse at moss side health center <laughs> how weird how weird is that so there you go <laughs> god well this is this is my life i do have a tendency to um it, i call it synchronicity call it serendipity i don't know what it is but that's that in itself is very weird that we should have something in common so quickly <laughs> um, or something in common to talk about so well, well this film also of course you say had Hayley Mills in it but you'd also got John Mills in it as well you know it was it was a it was quite a big film really wasn't it for it was it was great I was taken into the what happened was I I, I fell for Hayley completely and thought she'd had this rarefied upbringing and felt that I could never um, show her how I felt. I fancied her rotten. And I was at that age, well, I think, I don't think it changes. You don't want to make a move that proves to you that they don't want to know at all. You know what I mean? You'd rather imagine that they might in, a, so uh, eventually I kept on saying, look, I know this might sound rude and I, I, your dad's around on the picture, but I do have to say, you do dress a little bit like a like a sort of forty year old and 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 I mean you are still living with your parents and I mean you you do say everybody says this is the film in which Haley grows up. Well, you know, would you like to come I'll take you to a few places where you might like the clothes. So I took her to Granny Takes a Trip, which was happening at the time. Uh, it was a psychedelic <laughs> clothes shop and then uh, said, you know, you ought to, really ought to get a, a place to live. Now, she seemed to appreciate all this and I thought, well, she's, you know, maybe, maybe she's listening, maybe it's, it's getting home. Um, and at the same time, anyway, I've had to go back to the Bolting brothers in their casting uh, started taking the piss out of my clothes, out of my suit. And because I've got no sense of uh, 
how can I put it? Uh, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I hadn't been trained as an actor. I wasn't thinking of the, um, I, I wasn't thinking of, uh, of this as a means of earning a living. Anybody who took the mickey out of how I presented myself deserved to have the mickey taken out. So I started taking the mickey out and they loved my confidence. So they hired me for the film. Uh, and the, one of the earliest things to do was to actually sing with the band at the wedding ceremony. So, you know, it all fitted in. And about three weeks after, four weeks after, um, I turned to Roy at a moment when there was a pause while they were setting up lighting. I, t I said, uh, are you okay with uh, what I'm doing? You, you, you happy with what I'm doing? And he said, um, no, actually I'm not. And I said, oh. Uh, well, I've been seeing rushes and I've been trying to, I've seen the odd mistake and thinking, well, I could be careful of that. And that, cause it's the first time I've ever seen myself on screen and all that. And she said, no, it's not that. It's just, you know, just got worse and worse. And I said, thought, you can't answer that. And you're still in the film and he's telling you you're bad. So I had to go away with that, which wasn't, didn't help. And I assumed he knew what he was talking about, you know. I didn't think he had any other acts to grind. And I went out to dinner with Hayley and she said, actually, Murray, I'm in love. And I thought, oh God, who is it? Who could it be? So I, I said, you know, asked, went through the list, cast list of various people and she said, oh God, no, 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 no. The last thing I ever imagined was that she'd be having a scene with the director. And that in retrospect, many years later, I realized there's a strong chance that the reason Roy Bolting, although in a sense, I did, you know, it helped her into his arms by, you know, saying she should get a flat away from living with her parents and should start looking, you know, I've actually helped the situation. Uh, I think he had bore a grudge against me for forever, you know, um, because I was a lot younger. And I was actually put in a position to be exactly that thing, that to, to be a temptation to her away from my brother because I was so normal and etc 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 so it was it was an, a, a, a tough indoctrination and uh, i didn't you know i i didn't come away with the same confidence that i went into it yeah it, will knock seemed... confidence, won't it? it will definitely knock yeah. your confidence at that point yeah definitely yeah. so so that was obviously your first film there was some other stuff along the way in the 60s but you became known before Sunday Buddy Sunday. You became known for the um, superstar, didn't you? Nineteen seventy. That was That's the right. that was the big thing musically, which you're still very much known for. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. Well, when I was doing Family Way, one of the songs for Family Way that we actually played, and and eventually it ended up uh, being listened to. There was a scene in a record store where you used to have booths and you had and Hayley comes to see me in there and I'm listening to the song over the over the over the uh, over the speakers in the in the booth and uh, so you don't really hear it I think it was destined for something bigger but at the end of Family Way they gave the job to Paul McCartney 
So um, it, it kind of pushed me into the background. But that was the third single I made with EMI. The first was with Norrie Paramore. That didn't sell. The second was with his cousin, uh, uh, David Paramore, which is a thing called the Bells and Rimney. And the third, third one was this song, Someday Soon, being done in the family way, which they, they leash, unleashed um, a, an apprentice A&R man called Tim Rice. He came up to see my band. I was with a band uh, who were all at Oxford. I was the only non-Oxford graduate. He, they were all graduates and they were, it was, it was a band called the Blue Monks and Their Dirty Habits. And it, um, it, again, it was strange being on the outside, being, they shoved me in a, a, a house full of um, terrifying women. Um, by terrifying, they were either doing doctorates or they were, you know, uh, they were just, I was like, a, you know, I was like a pet poodle. They, they took the mickey out of me, the lot, you know. And so I'm beginning to help you build a picture of how things go. It's great at the offset, but things, you know, and I don't know whether I should question myself whether it's something about my own nature subconsciously that I cannot control, but uh, it, things get difficult. And um, Tim Rice came to me uh, after that experience, obviously logged it. He felt more at home with my band at Oxford because they'd all been brought up in public school and he's a you know public school boy, he's not a street man. Uh, I was a lot closer to the street than him and uh, it sort of, it, he called me up in 69 and said, would I go round to Andrew Lloyd Webber's flat? He's his partner. They'd done um, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat and they called me, they had a new project in mind and it was going to be opened with, the, by, with a single and Tim sung it while Andrew played it. Now, Andrew when you're a composer, you don't necessarily have to be an extremely dexterous pianist. And he sort of fumbled his way through this extraordinary piece with Tim going, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And, you know, it was like, and I bought with me the sax player from the Oxford band, who then went on to have a very a successful musical career. And they played this song and somewhere lost in the piles of cassettes that I've got collected is a wonderful cassette where there's a sort of 45 minute silence. Uh, and I, I sort of chip in at the end and say, you're effing mad. You, you want to write an album about the most known story ever and you know fine okay i mean i'm i'm up i'm up for it i'll do anything i'll do anything for a laugh but i mean it strikes me as if you know that you could have come up with a slightly more original theme it was original in the sense that it was uh, from judas's perspective and it was going to be in the last 13 days and Ju judas was sort of in a sense the um the 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 keeper of, 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 the, of the group's money and she was, things were getting out of hand. 
the Jesus Christ Superstar song actually says, you know, why did you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? To you know, 2,000 years ago, when if it had come today, you could have had all the media, which is not, it's interesting as a, as a concept. Um, and they, in order to get it sold, uh, what, what um, Chris Mercer, the saxophonist, brought with him was some amazing musician contacts. And he had, as his, uh, as his friends, um, Alan Spenner, Bruce Rowland, uh, Neil Hubbard, um, and Henry uh, oh McCullough, who were all Joe Cocker's Grease Bland, who'd just been to America to do, uh, you know, Mad Dogs and English and Talk. And uh, they were the best rhythm section around, and they were incredibly funky. And that, when you've got a, a rhythm section like that, at the foundation, you can put all the orchestras and you like on top of it, it's meaty, it's got something special about it. And that's what made that album special. Um, and I never met Ian Gillen, who played Christ, who was uh, in, in uh, Deep Purple, but between us, um, we, gave this piece the angst that was necessary and that because of that angst it seemed very current and very and you know I didn't have any problem translating my personal life and and letting it rip uh, in the recording studios and the they brought the single out first uh, I did Top of the Pops it was disastrous I had a, a, a run-in with the uh, the guy who was in the MD of the uh, <laughs> the Top of the Pops Orchestra, Johnny Pearson, um, and so I think from that moment on it sort of went downhill. They it it they they felt that it needed. Um, some kind of encouragement from the church and so the dean of st paul's wrote this piece that accompanied the, the single um mca were worried about the amount of money it was going to cost but they still stuck behind it and so we started we made the album and the single in the meantime got to number 13 in england so it wasn't it wasn't doing what they were hoping and it got taken to America. And what, it's a bit like, there's a wonderful moment when Freud uh, left his pals, Jung and Co, in Switzerland and decided he'd go and make his, you know, his fortune in America. He arrived, uh, the, the timing was immaculate. He arrived just at the point when America was desperate to break away from the biblical trends and 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 needed psychology uh, and especially all the sexual stuff. And so he arrived just at the right time. Well, Jesus Christ Superstar also arrived in America at just the time when the new generation needed some way of of having. Uh, this old story, you know, with a, a fresh outlook. So they took off and they said immediately, you know, dump all the English, don't want them. 
And so suddenly uh, all this effort went to nothing. Jim and Andrew went to America and got the thing sold over there. And I even went and offered myself as promotion because I went to go and get a record deal. And there was something weird about the way everybody was behaving with me because it was all being already being lined up with Americans. Uh, but no one told us. Yeah, you seem, to, you seem to keep getting knifed in the back at some point, don't you? Now you're getting the picture. <laughs> but nonetheless, nonetheless, that was the start, in a way, of your musical career, which went on to, you, you, you did One Night in Bangkok later on, didn't you? And you've done all sorts of things over the years. So when you look back at it, I mean, you were a young man at the time, you know, when you, do you look back at it quite fondly, that period, in a way, or was it, and too angsty for you? No, I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever because it helped me, that kind of stab in the back thing helps you to keep a, a, a perspective on, on show business and see how it is. I mean, we will talk. Uh, I shall enjoy talking about Bloody Sunday because uh, same old, same old. And it's um it's really interesting that i could never have handled super fame i'm not i'm when i talked to you at the beginning of this about sensitivity um unfortunately it allows you to see things as they are not as people will pretend it is you know for the sake of showbiz um I can't schmooze for a second. I can't, I haven't networked. When I found out that the way people function, you know, probably in the sort of early ages, I found out the way people function in the business is by schmoozing and networking. I learned it oddly enough uh, through the French in the eighties, saw these young actors working their butts off to sort of with, with interviews and seeing producers and seeing this person, seeing that person. I mean, it was, you know, and then when you get the slightest bit of success, you then buy a book uh, with the idea of playing the major role in it. And all those stuff, all that, I, you know, I always thought you could just be a good actor or, you know, be the, play the role, do it, hopefully with your own experience, knowing, you know, roughly what, how how you would feel in those circumstances and put yourself in the skin and a lot of work was went into mentally into into filling the role there were before both um jesus christ superstar and sunday bloody sundays which happened exactly the same time yes yeah um i the year previously i'd been um i was in the west end and I had my guitar with me and uh, somebody, I can't remember, I, I saw somebody I knew in the street and he said, are you going along to the auditions for hair? And I went, oh, um, no, I hadn't thought of it. Why? Said, well, they're auditioning everybody for hair. So, and he led me to believe that it was going to not be like the usual auditions, you know, next. Um, it's, it was going to be, um, more open in they were looking for people they'd hired people who were you know uh, from the street and so I went along to the Shaftesbury uh, and um, it was just the same as usual you know some guy you know some 
dreadful piano, out of tune piano, and a man on it playing it. And I walked in, you know, next, and and they were somewhere out there in the in the auditorium in the dark. And they said, "Can you bring up tempo number, please?" So you, so I I played. What's that? Don't recognise that. No, it's one of mine. Oh. Do you know anybody else's? Not really, I only know my own stuff. Uh, excuse me, actually, I can't see who I'm talking to. Do you mind? So I get off the stage, walk straight up to them and say, my name's Murray Head and you're, uh, who are you? And they give me their names. And so suddenly I'd broken the pros, the pros arch. And of course they loved the confidence. So I went back and played and they said, you're on, you're understanding the lead. Uh, you'll be, you know, understanding Berger. Uh, it was not Oliver Tobias, it was the other one, Gary, somebody. And uh, so I went into hair. And the, the really weird thing about it was that, that you're supposed to be yourself. And yet, there was no such thing as a draft card in England, there was no Vietnam for the English. We were sort of enjoying sort of a year of pure hedonism. And so I, I got into this thing, started being myself, and that was fine. I didn't really want to understudy the lead. It was, you know, not my, not my bag, really. I was quite happy just being there. And this dichotomy of burning draft cards and draft cards and having American names and everything else was in conflict with the idea of being yourself. It, the two don't mix. And with that, the cast changed. And while I'm not saying that I'm a, a drug addict, um, I knew enough about drugs to know that when actresses, new actresses who come into the part would say, let's go down and have a, let's go around the corner and have a GT. Uh, in this, in the scene where we're all supposed to be out of our minds on uh, on acid, um, you know, there was something dreadfully phony about it, um, and so I wasn't that happy. And in the contract, it said if you had a hit record or you had a film, you could you could break your contract. And suddenly, after four months, I had both. I had Jesus Christ Superstar and I had Sunday Bloody Sundays. So let's focus then um, on Sunday Bloody Sunday. How did you land this big bisexual role? I went through three auditions with uh, John Schlesinger. Uh, the first was to talk about myself and my parents and my background. The second was to do a reading and the third was a screen test. I believe there were eight other people up for the job. They were obviously toying with the idea of whether to use uh, somebody gay or whether to use a heterosexual. And they went for the heterosexual side. I think Penelope Gilliatt had a say in it. But what was interesting was that at that point, the Doctor was played by Ian Bannon. And we did some rehearsals uh, for dialogue. I mean, it's what you do is you start doing spontaneous stuff and 
Penelope Gilliatt runs in between your legs or round you with a notepad, taking down what you're saying. And I have to say that some of the stuff I came up with, I actually found on screen, which is, you know, one thing to be proud of. Um, but the mischief in John was such that he said, um, to Ian Bannon, you know, right, uh, I'd like to see the kiss now. This famous kiss that has already got, uh, uh, you know, a, a red ring round it or in, is underlined. And Ian Bannon, he went for me and it was highly unnatural, incredibly intense. And he thrust his tongue down my throat and it was, you know, in a rehearsal, it wasn't quite what I was waiting for. It was a, it, it just felt uncomfortable. And it was hard to relax and <laughs> during the moment. So he didn't get the part in the end. How then did Peter Finch get the role? Probably the, the biggest compliment that anybody's ever paid me was when they came up to me, if, uh, you know, uh, they put the film on hold and said, uh, just out of interest, Murray, who, would, who do you see playing this role? And I said, well, funnily enough, I've got an incredibly vivid image of, um, of Peter Finch, who was in The, the Pumpkin Eater. Um, and... I think that was a Penelope. I think that was a Penelope Gilliatt screenplay. I'm not sure. Peter, Finch, Peter, Finch, Peter Finch had also, of course, played Oscar Wilde in the Trials of Oscar Wilde, hadn't he? Already? Yes, I think so. You know, I think he'd done that in the sixties. No, no, no. Was that later? Was it? I think he said. Well, no. Anyway, at the time, they thought of him. They said we thought of him. The trouble is, he's in Russia doing the Red Tent. And I said, and he said, anybody else? I said, well, uh, and I threw it. I think I even said Bernard Lee, but whatever it was, um, the idea that they should ask me at all if I had anybody in mind uh, was extraordinary. It gave me enormous confidence. Just checking, just checking. Yeah, The Trials of Oscar Wilde was 1960. Oh, right. Yeah, so he'd... So, so he'd, he'd already... Oh, he knew, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he'd, he'd already played those kind of parts to an extent, so, you know, as well. And he played, yes, and he played it beautifully because I remember, I've seen it and it's... Um, I love Rupert Everett's, but I mean, I do think um, that, that bearing in mind the, the time, um, I thought... Uh, He's, he's just avoiding the camp uh, so well, you know. Uh, and, it and it's got so much pathos as a film. So what, uh, were you, what were you, I mean, just looking back at this film now for a second, um, obviously it was 1971. Um, homosexuality in the UK had only just been decriminalised in 1967, 68. Not only looking at homosexuality, because Peter Finch's character was, was gay, but it was also looking and touching on something which still rarely gets talked about even today, even though it's huge, 
and that is bisexuality. People who are bisexual. I think we're, I think we're much freer now with the LGBT, the whole movement of wait a minute. We are. Not everybody feels the same way, you know. We are. We are. Although I present a program called Bisexual Brunch, which is a, a worldwide podcast, and it's a, it's it's amazing how many men in particular constantly get in touch with us who are in um, straight-facing relationships who've never been able to be honest with their partners about the fact that they're bisexual. So it's still an issue for a lot of people. You know, it's, it's easier to be gay yeah. than it is to be bisexual. So were you told from the outset that you were going to be this bisexual character? I wasn't told anything. I knew it was bisexual from the script. Don't forget, Peter Finch is John Sessinger. It's John Sessinger's story. What annoyed me, because I need some tangible link with reality, all the trimmings, the, the, the film industry and its problems, that it was having in those days uh, are, are confusing. People coming up and saying, "Ah, oh, well, you're a star now. You're, you know, you're." All, I'm going. Please, don't, don't go there. Leave me alone. I'm doing a job, and it's a difficult job, um, and I've got, you know. Now, what John I think liked in his first and second audition was something that I knew I possibly had in my personality. But as soon as it appeared or I would recognize it again, I would do everything in my power to lose it, which is a capacity for cutting out. And I think he wanted that coldness. Um, when it got down to it, um, Glinda at the same time was in a different period of evolution. She, uh, I think she exposed herself, it's a, it's a comment that I, it's, it's, a, it's just my opinion, but I think she exposed herself more than she had realized in the Ken Russell Tchaikovsky. Uh, there's a scene in a carriage with Richard Chamberlain, it's, you know, and that it had brought the usual sort of attitude from the press. And so she'd also just had a child and got married to Roy and I, I tried desperately to find a heart, to find something, by, you know, to, to base, to, to, to just something, some small way in which to appeal. It was stone cold. It was just, it was somewhere in there, but frozen. I, I don't know, you know, it doesn't work like that. She works in a different way. I need emotional contact. Whereas Peter Finch, 
I just worshipped. He was the most wonderful man I'd ever met in my life. He believed in all the things that I had sort of, was part of my hippie philosophy, of an attitude to possessions and everything else. He was just extraordinary. And I was, in a sense, because I wasn't getting anything from gender, I was in love with Peter in a way. You can, weirdly, weirdly, you telling me that, having watched the film several times, that's one of the things that strikes you. You can tell there's a, there's a definite warmth between the two guys and a coldness between the man and the woman. It's, it's weird, but it's there. You can tell on screen, I think. Well, add to this that because John is the doctor, I never met, I think I had an inkling as to who the woman was. But he was merely interested in the two. It was even relevant in the in the posters. I'm somewhere. In, I'm 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 somewhere in the background. You've got the two of them face to face of Glenda and Peter, and I felt out of focus nearly all the way through the film. It was like all the attention had to be on their compromises, their sacrifices, not the young man who can do what he likes. You know, and. About a third of the way through the film, I broke down. I said to John, what the fuck do they see? Why do they put up with this? With this little tit who just, you know, wanders around, does what he wants, goes to one when he feels like, goes to another when he gets bored. What is it? I mean, what do they see in him? She said, sex, dear. And I, I found myself saying, you know, what? Well, that's all very well. Sex does a lot, mate. But, you know, I hadn't found ultimate sex by that time in my life. I was quite young, you know. So, you know, there was no way I could understand that. And then came the moment of the kiss. And despite all that carefree attitude. I mean, all the way through the film, if you look at it, his attitude to the young is pretty devastating. I mean, it's either children scoring uh, cars with, you know, keys, uh, or it's, it's children smoking joints in bed, or it's uh, young, young, young teenagers or, or, or hippies hanging around boots at 12 o'clock at midnight. Um, the only other young person is John Finch, and he's, he, you know, he's a drunk. I mean, there's an attitude to the young which is pretty down. And all the way through, there's a non-stop barrage of, uh, of, of headlines in newspapers about strikes, about, you know, and it's really, it's, it's not that far from Terminus. It's, 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 it's um, you know, it's a very bleak outlook, but that's why it holds up today, because it is an amazing snatch of uh, or chunk of middle class England in its worst state of confusion. I mean, the whole stuff for the social workers, Vivian Pickles and, and Frank Windsor, it's fantastic stuff. You know, and, and, and the token black Jerry Baptiste who's there, you know, who uh, it's all and the picture of the the woman with the whole, you know, the Oxfam poster on the wall and uh, refugee starvation and, 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 and her 
milk in the fridge, you know, the, the, her breast milk in the It's all very real and very tough. But despite all that, the second assistant um, said, oh, it's the big scene, isn't it? Oh, are you ready for the big scene? And I thought, fuck, he hasn't told me about the lines. I haven't read, I haven't learned my lines. So I got, looked at the screen and said, what big scene? Oh, right. It's the kiss. So Peter and I are there, ready for the rehearsal. And, you know, we're relaxed. There's this vibe from the, all the technicians, which I learn about afterwards, because they keep on coming up and saying, sort of launching into these obscure diatribes and then saying, <laughs> saying things like, I, I mean, I, I mean, I know you're an actor and I know you're supposed to be, a, but I, I mean, I, how do, what do you feel when you have to, I mean, how to kiss a man? Oh, and all that, you go, oh, fuck, crying out loud, mate, you know, get yourself sorted. Uh, you just, the, the weight of this dense atmosphere, which is finally prefaced by the camera operator stopping leaning on his camera and saying, John, is this really necessary? Uh, which I, you know, I thought, okay, mate, you know, fuck you. Uh, this, is, this is where I go for it. And Peter had to find the perfect uh, expression for the press. You know, Murray and I did it for England. But, but I just thought, you know, this is absurd that such a small and, and lovely gesture should have this ring of fear and, and I don't know uh, what you call it. It's, um, it was so unnecessary. And it made me early on in life think, well, you know, do what you feel, what your heart tells you, but for God's sake, you know, keep, Void society because you know it's just not there. And the, the trouble is, it, what's good about it is that I was part of a moment which is easily recognizable. When we saw the film in Mushes, and the head of Universal, Dave Pickers, came to, to see the film in, in, in Rushes, I promise you. The cigar dropped out of the mouth when he saw the kissing. And I, the pride I had when it happened was just, oh, thank goodness, I've actually, I've actually done something. I've done something which causes more than a ripple. And to this day, it still has a, you know, it's because it's so natural. Now, we'll talk in a minute about the impact of the film, but... For you personally, obviously it was a, a very sexual film. You were in the nude a lot, all that kind of stuff. Did any of that bother you at the time? I mean, was that, how did you go about Nothing that? bothered you if it's, if it's realistic, if it's, if it's part of life. And did it feel realistic to you? Like in, in hair, they all take off their clothes at the end of the first act. Uh, they, they take off their clothes under a huge parachute of silk. I cannot tell you what the smell was like. I mean, it was the worst smell of, of all time. I mean, it was unbelievable. 
because the, the parachute had never been washed and the people under it were, you know, quite sweaty and smelly. And so when I had, you know, I was leaving, I decided to uh, send it up. And so at the end, in that scene, it's uh, sort of ended by two, two actors in police costume coming down the center aisle, standing on stage and threatening to arrest them all because they're naked. We've also got, you know, uh, Calcutta's going on and all that, you know, as, at the same time. So I, inside, I'm thinking, this is just so self-conscious. So what I did was that on my last night, I dressed up as a flasher with, um, with suspend, you know, cut, cut, cut off trousers, suspenders holding them up, a mat, and walked up the aisle with and, <laughs> the police and flashed all these people naked on scene. And two of the cast went, oh my God, there's a man out there, and rushed off and did, did this whole thing. And I thought, yeah. Yeah, I've always felt that about you, you know, and uh, it, because it requires, you know, bursting the bubble. And the thing that was good was that self-consciousness was never present with, it was a bit with, with Glenda because I think she'd been burned. With Peter, he was so open. So at no point did I feel anything wrong. As I say, I'd, I'd stripped off in hair and it was an era where, you know, if you've got it, you know, all right, it might be a bit small or it might be a bit big, whatever, you know, who, who cares? And, um, and it's hard being all the way through life. If it's self-conscious, then it's doomed. Uh, I mean, I bumped in, after the film, I bumped into Roy Bolting in, in Poland Street. And he said, oh, I saw the film, terrible. I mean, how boring. What a boring person you were. I mean, how could you? And it was like, well, I didn't know. I didn't think of, I hadn't thought of the Haley story or anything like that. I thought, all right, yes, I can see how it was boring. I tried my hardest to, to make more of it, but they didn't want that injection. They might have wanted it afterwards, but they didn't want it while I was there. What they wanted was to focus on the two. I also met the person I was playing. And that was a shock. That was a real shock. I felt that uh, someone in the story had kidded themselves as to, you know. Uh, there I would question you see, I buy bisexuality anytime if it's real, if it's honest, if it's true. I don't like it as a means to an end. I don't, I, I, that's wrong, totally wrong. I, that's not my society, that's not my... You don't, so you don't, think, you don't think the creators of this then had, really had bisexuality in, the, in mind, really? It was just, it was just there as a, as, a, as a toy, really, to... To sort of deal with the other two characters, they weren't really they didn't really care about your character, did they? Really? Well, to, no. But I, well, it's difficult because I, I don't know how much Penelope did, Penelope Gilliard, because she was responsible for choosing me. 
Um, don't forget, I know thou in old age that youth is dispensable. It 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 has a you know and it's got a, an adverse you, you know they're getting rid of us as quickly as they can, and in the same way as we're in our into our thirties, forties, and fifties, we try and ignore them and because they consider themselves immortal, you're still immortal at that age. Um, they can wait, you know, you know, you don't take them seriously enough. It's being seen from a, an older perspective and I don't think the film probably did everything that John wanted. I mean, I have to say that when he died, there, uh, there was this, um, a series of uh, obituaries where I don't know who'd written it, but I mean, they said John was really disappointed in Murray Head. He was never funny enough, or he was not, you know, uh, a whole thing. There was no room to be funny. There was no, you know, it, if there was funny, it was old men's humor. It certainly wasn't, you know, as I say, his attitude to the young is very prevalent throughout the film. It's very dark and, you know, and easily dispensed with. So I think it's because it happened, that's the excuse for everything. Was it seen as shocking at the time? Did it shock? Just the kiss shocked. I mean, I read, I read a wonderful article from um, John Hurt, who... <laughs> who was talking about the naked civil servant, which was magnificent. And I knew of Quentin Crisp way before they did that film, because he used to be on the train going down to Guildford to be a male model in the art college there. And uh, I thought it was a magnificent performance, but John is capable of that. He is great. I mean, Frankly, uh, Elephant Man is unsurpassed. It's the most extraordinary thing that anybody could ever do because it, you know, he's got all that gear and that mask and it was just stunning. Um, and he said, well, I got away with it, unlike Murray Head, who had the kiss of death. And I thought, oh, that's, that's great. I hadn't thought about that. Judas as well, eh? <laughs> he's like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a name for kissing, you know. Um, and it was such an innocuous and charming moment. What the heck? There should be so much around it. Shows you how screwed up life is. And that I don't think for a minute, John, because I went along to this 45th or something or other when they just done, they cleaned up the colour and they put it on at the BFI. And uh, they asked me whether I'd come along and talk afterwards. Uh, and, and watching the film, I thought, wow, it really holds up. And it holds up for the reason that I don't think John originally set out to do, which, like Terminus, it's a perfect example of the confusion in the 70s that we've we've partly come out of but i mean that same self-consciousness has you know got us into what you used to use this expression non-you and you now you know what's politically correct and what's it's it's such a millstone around the neck 
it's just it's so heavy why no absolutely. So absolutely so what did it what do you think i mean people the kiss was shocking um do, do you remember i know thing you know we we don't have the same discussions or didn't have the same discussions then as we have now but this was a period when you know um homosexuality and bisexuality and whatever was 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 start was only just starting to be legally accepted etc can you remember what the response was from the different communities at the time i mean was there much of a response or can you remember what people said to you did it, you know uh, it didn't get out enough i was quite keen after having been in Wales for quite a few. I went down to live in the country in Wales, West Wales, uh, near Cardigan. And um, it had finally made its way to television by, six, by 76 or 78 or something like that. And I was quite interested to see how my neighbours would react. And uh, it was, uh, well, uh, you know, we don't get that sort of thing down here. We don't really know these people, these kind of people. I mean, I, yes, I suppose so. You were, your acting wasn't bad, you know, I mean, but it, it, it just, it's luckily far too remote. And I think the film was remote. I don't, it was, it was, a, it was a critical success, mm. but I don't think it, you know, it's a, it's an exposure of a, a life that the people are not capable, really, yeah, of, I mean, as you of said, seeing objectively. As you said at the beginning, it's a very middle class look at life, isn't it? It's not, yeah. it's, it's not like it's, uh, you know, you were the, you were a local builder who, happens, no. who happens to be bisexual, having sex with the, you know, the woman who runs the cafe yeah. around the corner and the, and the miner, you know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's an area which a lot of people would just not understand, isn't it? That's the, that's the thing. They wouldn't yeah. connect with, would they, at all, you know? Yeah. It's, well, it's, you know, frankly, it's luxury. Yeah. I built luxurious machines. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, uh, all my machines were made by um, Long Crane and, and Broxton. They, 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 their whole thing was making gadgets and clever, you know, sculptures and, and, and things. It's, it's very strange. Um, I was kept in a box. I wasn't allowed out of it. I'll never know why. Um, I didn't, there were some things that I was asked to do that I couldn't do and weren't, so it didn't, it fell on. It didn't come through. It would have been very interesting, you know, having now, as I say, we make this program called Bisexual Brunch and I, I, I count myself as bisexual. And um, being a bisexual person, it, it's a very interesting life in the sense I'm very monogamous. I have a partner who I, I'm very loyal to. Yes, there are other people out there who are bisexual who are promiscuous, but like there are straight and gay people who are promiscuous. But I think it's taken a long time for people to really understand what bisexuality means. It would have well, been- Well, I hasten to add, I have to say, Yeah. And I can't help feeling that promiscuity has taken more of a backseat. That's given room for real love and yeah. affection yeah. Uh, and given it a chance Absolutely. and given it an opportunity. But, but, there is, but there is nothing wrong with people if they want to obviously, you know, be promiscuous and enjoy themselves and all the rest of it. But what I'm saying about your part is that 
maybe if this had been done 20, 30 years later, you might have been in a position where your, your character would have been more whole. There would have been more feeling. There would have been more depth to it. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah, it, it would have, have been a lot more revealing. I mean, you're, I would have, you, you know. Were, you were playing a sort of rather empty vessel, weren't you, really? That was the problem, in yeah. a way. You know, which yes. Is a shame. Yeah. But also because I'm middle class and I'm, I'm stuck. I was the only young person on the set all the way through it. And yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's, it's just lonely. I want to talk in a moment about what the film did for you. But before we do, within that film, as well as Peter Finch and Glenda Jackson, there were some other interesting names in there of people. I'd just like to get a take on what they were like as people. Peggy Ashcroft, what was she like? Oh, she's just, I mean, I was never there when she did her scenes, but, uh, you know, you saw her in the film, I saw her in the film. It's absolutely stunning. I mean, she never put a foot wrong all the way through her career. She was absolutely stunning. Morris Denham was a bit uptight. Yeah. But that's because he had a very small part in it, he considered, considering right. his stature at the time. What about Tony Britton? Oh, Oh, what a scene. I mean, you know, he was all, everything you could ever, because really, in the end, it's as much how you deal with not failure, but being ignored and being out, put out to grass or whatever, which I know a lot about. Um, and uh, it's, it's how you deal with the ups and the downs together. Yeah. And he was so real. Mm -hmm. I think also, you know, it's, I mean, I have, I see filming as an opportunity. Uh, you see, as far as singing is concerned, I go, I've got, I had to, because of COVID, I had to postpone something like 25 gigs or something, and I've got them all at the end of the year. But it's me, it's my songs. I go on stage, it's bathing in the luxury of self-indulgence, whatever. The moment you sign a film contract, they own you 25 hours a day. And um, in that owning you, at the bottom of it is coming to terms with all we want is for you to learn the lines and be on the marks. which is fine in itself, but it allows for an arrogance and a, um, a hierarchy that I can't bear. I mean, I really can't bear it. You know, you, the director can't put a foot wrong, he's God. And I don't see any necessity for that at all. Um, so, I don't know, what was the question you asked? Sorry. <laughs> I was out, we were asking about uh, Tony Britton, weren't we? Yeah, and so, to me, acting's about staying as much in real life as possible, not worrying about your ego, worrying about whether they love you or not, or whether they're going to take you or not. It's about, you know, making use of the time you've got. And uh, Tony Britton was exactly that. Most of the people, uh, most of the actors that I love, I mean, Peter Finch was fantastic to be with. We could talk about so much. It was only later when I read his autobiography. I mean, his particular cross to bear was just horrendous. Um, 
his father was an amazing explorer. He was uh, in that group that went up Everest without any oxygen in 1926. Um, Peter was abandoned and put in a, a, a home and uh, I think it's his step-grandmother or somebody, somebody picked, took him out of the home and took him to India and put him in a Buddhist monastery, which uh, he left at a certain point and found his own way to Australia, where he was perfectly happy until Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee, Lee picked him up and brought him to England. He was a natural, there was no doubt about it. But I mean, I never got to talk as much as I wanted to about the Aborigines, but his understanding, you just knew his understanding of life was, he got, he found the right things to, to root for, the right things to believe in. Um, and they are the people that you are attracted to and you learn from. Um, and the rest of it, as I say, whenever I did films, it wasn't, you know, you don't take the acting for granted, but you know what's asked of you and you do the thing. And that's pretty straightforward. You hope that you can make the lines work because um, that's your job is to make them work. Your job is to communicate. Um, and the rest of it is what's happening around. And I find that fascinating. You touched earlier on on the tokenism, of course, of, of Tho Thomas Baptiste's character. Yeah. You know, obviously this was a period when there was a lot of tokenism. There were black characters here and there, but they were very token. What, were, what was he like? What was he like? You remember? Well, being in that position and so marginally elevated, being a rare black actor, he was a very good actor, a great person to get on with. But he was, an opera, he was an opera singer as well, wasn't he? Was he an opera singer? Yes, I think he yeah. was. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, I didn't find much in common i mean i think he sent a script to me which i read and and and, and didn't really understand as i should have done but don't forget i'm only about 22 or something at the time i mean i'm not i, I had some cognizance but um for me it was i don't know whether it's the right thing to say things about other people he's a little bit pompous in some ways but i don't i think that was the role he was playing you know yeah, um, Professor Johns, wasn't it? Professor yes. Yeah, yeah. And well, you never know with all these people when you meet them, you know, and you're not actually shooting and they're, you're milling around the set. You have no idea whether they're in character or they're not. <laughs> the, um, somebody I've got to know who was in the film, I've worked with her a few times recently, was June Brown. Oh. Oh, I mean, oh, God. The nail paint, he cuts his nail. Oh, that was the most moving, moving performance of all time. I never saw it happen. I just saw it in the film and just remembered her forever. And when she appeared in, 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 in EastEnders, it was like, oh, last somebody's recognized the, the most immense talent. Yeah. And Richard Pearson. As the he's the hypochondriac being felt on the table by we start with him, it's fantastic. With 
and and the way that the, the, the Peter Finch deals with them. Yeah, no, it's a, it's where John's background in documentary just comes flooding through. The only person I was slightly disappointed in because I didn't really understand why he had to have a, a Scottish accent was um was John. He was he was he was great. He was a brooding actor, wonderful young actor. John Finch. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And of course, somebody who was in it, and I, I didn't realise was in it, I've just noticed that, was a future big name star who was uncredited as a child vandal, and that was Daniel Day-Lewis. What? Daniel Day-Lewis. Is he the child who's got the, who scrapes the cars? Apparently so, yeah, I think so. He was un uncredited child vandal, Daniel Day-Lewis. There you go. <laughs> so this film has a lot of um, a lot of tentacles, doesn't it? A lot of tentacles. It certainly has. <laughs> but what's more important than anything else is that it still holds up. What about the music? The music was quite important as well, wasn't it? Was it Cozy Van Tutti, wasn't it, and things like that? Uh, Cozy Van Tutti does does wonders. You don't ever worry about that. It was Ron Jeeson was given the job of doing. Who does sort of. Um, classically, classically tinged guitar uh, places and pieces and that. Yes. Now the music was lovely. When you look back then at it yourself, when you've watched it in more recent times, how do you feel about your own performance? Not great. There are moments. <laughs> um, you were a young man. This is 50 years ago we're talking about. Yeah. But, A, uh, my voice is high enough in real life. But when there was an awful moment when film was converted to tape and there was something happened in the, um, the speed, which meant that the voices were all a bit higher and my voice couldn't take being any higher than it was in the film. So it's like, you know, and it sounds very plushy and very pruney. Um, difficult to say. I, I mean, I don't think anybody likes their own work. They always, I mean, not that one felt that I didn't know where I could have improved it. It's difficult to say because the object of the exercises, the exercise was to put the point over. And I think what's good is that you've seized on the one thing that, the, the film was sold on, you know, despite the fact they didn't quite get it and they didn't quite... Well, the bizarre thing is, 50 years on, as somebody who covers the issue of bisexuality on a regular basis, we have moved on. There is lesbian, gay, trans, um, all sorts of different things out there. But actually, bisexuality tends still to be run away from by the media. Even in soaps and things, you'll find you'll get a bisexual character within a short period of time, they'll either be made gay or straight or written out quickly. People still, they, they, the media still has a problem with exploring the issue of bisexuality. So actually the film that you were in 50 years ago is one of the few that is still out there that's, that exists. There might be things like My Private Idaho, possibly things like that. But generally there've been very few films ever that have really tackled the issue of bisexuality, um, which is a shame, you know, 50 years old. because he wanted to keep me in the background, I come over incredibly cold. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that thing of deciding to go to America, running away, it is a male trait, the capacity for running away, not dealing with it. So it was, it was yes, it was exposed, but it was half-hearted in its exposition. And I, and in, in a way, it gives a wrong impression of yes. bisexuality, sadly. Exactly. Yeah. The only thing that's real about it is that it's in a way balanced and you could say the boy hadn't found himself yet and still didn't know what he was doing, you know, that he's attracted to these paternal uh, yeah. people, you know, rather than, 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 than something. What was um, the age difference supposed to be between the two, between the different parties? Well, I, I mean, I, I thought I was too young for it. But then, you know, he's looking for that thing where he said, you know, when I said, what are these people having? But what do they see in this boy? He said, sex, dear. And that was it. <laughs> you know, um, I, it didn't help the career at all. Didn't help your career? No. Nah. Really? really? And that's what John Hurt was alluding to. That's why he called it the kiss of death. Uh, and to a certain extent, I, I, I believe him. It, 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 I went for another role shortly after it, which I loved, which is a thing, an H.E. Bates thing with um, Oliver Reed and uh, Glenda Jackson. Uh, and they wouldn't have it because Glenda was in it and they couldn't put us together again. Um, and after that, I had really bad scripts of people who really didn't understand. And you, you thought, oh, actually, I don't want to be part of this. This is, this is selling the wrong thing. And it's just they haven't, they haven't come to terms with it. It's absolutely wonderful to talk to you. I, I think we can both agree on Sunday Bloody Sunday that actually looking back at it, it was really a missed opportunity, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Certainly from the aspect that you're looking for. Um, it kind of took for granted the audience going, oh, well, oh, right, okay, you know, without any, and in order to try and keep me in the background as much as he did. Because don't forget, we get a lot of colour in the lives of, of, of uh, Glenda and her struggles with middle age and, and all that. A lot about... Uh, Daniel um, Daniel's problems with his his Jewish family wanting him to marry and 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 the bar mitzvah and sections of John's life and all that, which John would remember. I mean, we don't see anything about John's youth uh, and what he grew up in. You get an idea that it's it's claustrophobic from the sort of the Jewish background, but but. Um, as far as the boy's concerned, he don't, I mean, I was playing the, the, the charade scene in a way that like, what am I doing here with all these old people? And, you know, and I didn't have anybody young to be with, you know, there was never any pals. And so there's something radically missing about the expression, uh, the, the, the story of this boy and why he's there. And really, what you're saying is, in a way, we should have been more interested in why he decided 
to be with those two people and how they they how they they made so much it, it was so important to his life as opposed to him going along with their lives and and and, and responding to them on what they wanted to do what, what, what's so sad is i, I can understand a lot of that because it is 50 years ago it was a different time people were you know it's difficult people understanding homosexuality and then having to try and understand bisexuality but what is so sad about it is on the bisexual side we we've we have on the gay side, but on the bisexual side, we've hardly moved on at all, really. You know, yeah. actually, actually the, the, the film that you made in 1971 is still one of the very few that actually tackles bisexuality in any way, shape or form. And yet, when I say I play a bisexual, nobody ever questions that for a second. No, no. They take that for because what's happened is it's got included into the... The, the the social psyche and, and we understand that some people could you know etc 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 like both sexes but, um, it, but, but it becomes generally it becomes both within the gay community and the straight community bisexuality is a bit of a joke do you know what i mean you find people in gay relationships well, why because they can't be serious they feel yeah that's the that's the attitude a lot of gay men don't find they find they can't date bi people because they they're suspicious yeah, women are are suspicious of bi men as well and you know that nobody really understands there's a lot of mythology myths about it you know what i mean that if you're bisexual you must want to go out and sleep with everybody all the time you know what I mean? which is a load of nonsense murray 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 it's been lovely talking to you absolutely fascinating i really really enjoyed i mean you've been involved in so many interesting things and i'm glad you're still working glad you're still doing things thank you very much indeed for talking to me thank you and thank you for andrew for setting it up Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the Donate button. Thank you. <laughs>